Hey everyone, welcome back. This is week 47 of Creative Come Follow Me from the New Testament. And this week we get to go into Peter. I don't know about you, but I've missed Peter. I loved him in the Gospels and I feel like you got just a taste of Peter in Acts and now we get to get Peter's mind. What I really liked this week, you guys, is I feel like you're going to see the full arc of this incredible apostle, you know, where we loved him in the Gospels for his, you know, impetuousness and his desire to continually just push the boundaries of faith and see what he could do. You almost see a, a fuller version of Peter in these epistles, because this is at the end of Peter's lifetime. Most people think this is written from Rome. He'll eventually be executed by Nero, and this is probably towards the very end of his life. And it's almost like, well, th this week, I was as I was studying for this these chapters, I happened upon James E. Faust's first talk that he gave when he was called to the Quorum of the Twelve. If I remember right, it was like in 1979. And then I read his last, and I just, he's the same man. He has the same heart and a similar sound, other than the fact that he's just got this arc of testimony in the decades between the two. And I just, that's what you're going to hear this week, you guys. You're going to hear testimony that comes from the long haul. You know, in the Gospels, we see Peter's testimony increased rapidly through incredible experiences. You know, seeing a boat full of fish or seeing Jairus' daughter raised from the dead or seeing himself be able to walk on water, even just a few steps. You see these moments of lightning rod faith that grow. What we see, I think, in the epistles is the other side of faith. The faith that grows line upon line and over the course of lots of time. In fact, I think what endeared me the most to Peter this week as I was studying his words is he doesn't take you on a trip down memory lane. You know, he, he's going to tell us in the verses that he's writing all this down so that he can stir up our hearts to remembrance. But he's not just trying to stir up our hearts to remember the miracles that happened during the Savior's ministry. I felt like he was trying to stir up my heart to remember that I can have a relationship with the Savior now. Peter's not looking back on his life experience when the Savior was on the earth. He's saying, I have a relationship with the Savior now. I know him today. I just, there was something about that that gripped me. It was, um, he has a testimony of the living Christ, not just the Christ who lived on the earth, but the one who still lives. And that's what he's inviting us to grab hold of. He wants us to rest on those miracle moments that helped build his faith, just like he does, I'm sure. But he doesn't want us to stay there. He wants us to progress and become like the Savior. And for that to happen, you need time and you need line upon line learning. And Peter is the poster child for that. He's spent his entire lifetime teaching and preaching and calling hearts towards Jesus. And I just think you're going to love it. Like it's poignant. It feels powerful to me. After seeing, you know, Elder Ballard passed recently and hearing his witness, it's going to feel like that. It's going to feel like this pull from someone who's given their entire life to this great cause to invite you to join him. Like I just found myself rallied by the words of Peter and I think you will too. Trust me, you're going to love it. Grab your scriptures, grab your notes, you guys. It is time to get started. What makes Peter's writings very different than the writings of Paul or James or anybody else we're going to read is that he is the senior apostle. He is the chief of all these apostles. He is someone who holds all the keys and therefore has authority. And part of what he wants to do is to bring the saints together. They're scattered. Remember, this is more when the church is established, things are humming, and he's concerned for the welfare of the saints 
all in that area, no matter where they're from, because they're all dealing with different persecutions and hostilities. The Romans are coming after them. There's a lot of rumors and apostasy. And so he's trying to pull people close. And the way he does that is the exact same way President Nelson does it. And his, his message is one of, come unto Christ. When we remember that we have this common thread between us, no matter what my trials are, or no matter what circumstances I'm in, what brings me, what, what links me to you and to every other member in the church is that we all need the grace of Jesus Christ. And so he tries to get us to remember that label. It's almost as if these saints are hearing labels in their circumstances. And what the president of the church is trying to say is, don't let the world label you. Remember the real labels that matter. You are a child of God. You're a child of the covenant. You're a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's exactly what President Nelson teaches today. It's the same message. That's what those labels are what pull us in. And you'll kind of get that feel from Peter in these first few verses. So it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered. This is not... Well, I think strangers is in two ways. One, it means they don't know each other, they're not in each other's social circles, but what can bring them together is their belief in Christ. I also think it's a subtle reminder that this life is temporary. You know, they are, they are travelers here and they know that because they've made covenants and they've made promises and they know a little bit more about how this world is fleeting. And so I think Peter's trying to help them see that and find solidarity in it. Then he encourages them to see themselves as elect, chosen of God. That's what you see in two. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace be multiplied. I think what's powerful to me about this throughout these chapters is that Peter has firsthand experience and witness of this blood being sprinkled. Now, he was in the garden. I don't know how much he was able to see, but he certainly saw the Savior after. Um, I, you know, when, he, when he's about to be dragged off and he's seen the weight of what he endured in Gethsemane, he sees him through the trial. He sees, he sees all of this firsthand and he's his dearest friend, right? So when Peter talks to you and me about the blood of the Savior being something that unites us, I feel like that's his way of saying, like, don't don't let it go to waste. Remember what was offered. Uh, he makes it even more promising when you read a little further. And three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you. That's the gift, right? The lively hope is the gift that comes from the Savior. When we really appreciate his offering. We are filled with hope. What I thought was fun this time as I was studying is this idea of an incorruptible inheritance. Sometimes I think maybe it's just my mortal construct. It's hard for me to set down this idea of an inheritance being a thing or stuff or wealth or a mansion in heaven or whatever. And really what came out of this study for me was that the inheritance is actually the change that happens within me. It's the fact that I become like him in this process of refinement, right? My, I see people differently. My heart feels differently. I, you know, over the course of a lifetime, like Peter has had, and even beyond it, I feel like we're trying to build up those attributes of Christ. And that's the real inheritance. You are different. And that's incorruptible. When you come to be like the Savior, there is a promise that you, you won't retreat anymore. You won't have a 
you won't be pulled towards sin. You won't be pulled towards other things. You will, you will be different. And I just think that's a powerful inheritance. It's so much more valuable to me than this idea of a mansion in heaven or a crown. I just think it's something that is lasting. Um, I, I just loved the visual. And he's going to talk all throughout these chapters about how we can acquire that inheritance, how we can take on the characteristics of Jesus Christ over a lifetime of discipleship. And he warns that some of that's going to come through persecutions. That's what you see in six. You're in heaviness through manifold temptations or persecutions, if you go into the footnotes. But then he tells you why in seven, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than that of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. This is his invitation. I don't think what he's, I don't think he's trying to say that God causes these afflictions to come on to you. I don't think he's inspiring Nero to tell lies about the Christians, which cause everybody to hate them. I, that's not, I think, his message. His message is more of like, in all these hard circumstances where you have an evil emperor, you've got people who are turning on you, the Lord can make all this work together for your good. He can take these trials that are caused by outside agency, and he can make them refine you. You can become purified in this process. That is a mighty promise, and I just love the implication of it. It gets bigger in eight. Whom having not seen, ye love, in whom though ye see him not, ye believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. I just think that's such a it's such a beautiful promise for somebody like Peter to make, right? He is someone who has seen with his eyes and touched the wounds of the resurrected Savior, but he knows not everybody else has. And what he's trying to say is, you don't need to handle him. You don't need to see him with your physical eyes. You can know him. You can trust in him because of the witness you'll receive from the Spirit. It's more powerful. And I feel like who he's talking to are the people who have decided that they do believe, even though they don't see. These are people who have already planted that seed and let it grow and they're starting to reap the fruits of the season and that's his invitation is look you can know what I know and you could know it just as powerfully as I do let me show you how and then in nine receiving the end of your faith even the salvation of your souls this is you know if you look at the JST this is the object of your faith the whole reason you believe and trust in Jesus Christ is so that you can become as he is so you can feel at home where he is. That's that's his goal. And then 12, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them, which have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost. He's reminding us that Peter's not the beginning of these prophecies. He is someone who is an eyewitness of the Savior, but the prophets well before Peter spoke of the Savior, even saw the Savior. You know, you think of someone like Isaiah, who wrote specifically about seeing people like Mary and the birth of the Savior. Prophets have seen that day for a long time before this New Testament period, and that's what Peter's trying to help them remember. I think it's that you're a part of something big and lasting. This has been, this has been going on for a long, long time. And then he invites you to take action. If you believe that, then here's where you act. So in 13, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do I just love that phrasing? I just think it invites you to know things in your heart and to know things in your mind. I think that's what 30 years of discipleship give you. You start to realize you need both. You need time to wrestle with the doctrine and come to your own understanding and be able to articulate your faith, why you believe it. Those are things that come over the course of time as you gird up your mind. I also think it's an invitation to 
choose how to react to your circumstances. I think what he's inviting these Christian saints to do is to not react to the world around them as hostile and hard as it is, but to make a choice how they're going to react, who they're going to be, no matter how hard things get. He wants them to take control of of their mind and what they choose to think and say. In fact, saying is where he goes next. So it says in 15, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Okay, you guys, I don't entirely know what all this means. I just thought it was fascinating that so much of his emphasis, similar to what we read in James and even in Paul, there is something powerful about choosing how you speak, how you vocalize to the world your faith, your frustration, your determination. There is some link between those two. And I feel like Peter's trying to reinforce that. He's saying, if you want to be like the Savior, you need to have holy conversations. You need to elevate when others would expect you to descend. The reason I think that's powerful is it's that it's that choice that catches people's eye, right? When the Savior chose to be meek and humble and submit, when every natural man reason would give him perfect excuse to not do those things, that's what caught people's eye. You know, that's what I think Nicodemus saw in him. I think it's even what Pilate saw at the end. He could see that the Savior chose how to react in every circumstance and that he had total self-control. That's what I think Peter's inviting us to do, to be holy, to use holy conversations, even when we have every excuse not to. And when we do that, we become more like him. You just have to think this must come from decades of Peter's life experiences, where he's probably been cast down, he's been pushed away, he's been ignored, and he knows that there is something powerful about choosing how to speak. I think this is why we see a difference Remember when we were studying back, I think it was in Acts, about how Peter interacted with the Jews of his day in Jerusalem versus how Paul interacted with them? And Peter almost seemed like he was being more diplomatic. <laughs> I, I think maybe there's some of this in here. Because I think Peter is understanding that there, you, you, ha, you get to choose and you get to control how you speak about others and you're going to choose to elevate. And then he tells you why in 19. But with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot who was verily foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. The reason we choose to elevate and choose to live a higher, holier way is because it comes, it brings us closer to God. God the Father, I think, just like Elder Holland taught us all those years ago, I think the Savior came to give us a clear view of the Father his goodness, his mercy, his long-suffering, his love, when we, when we choose to be in control and to be meek, meaning powerful and in control, uh, then we come closer to God. That's his promise. We come to know him better. And so then he encourages you to continue that flow in 22. See that you love one another with a pure heart, fervently. I think a big way we come closer to Christ, in addition to choosing how we speak and what we say about others is to choose to serve, love one another, not just a little bit, but fervently, <laughs> passionately take care of each other. And then in 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. You're constantly setting down the natural man and letting something else grow in its stead. In fact, I heard, I can't even remember, it was like a month or two ago. I heard somebody in a podcast talk about how when you set down the natural man, it almost becomes like 
compost in the soil so that your new self can grow faster, which I just love the visual of. I think that's his invitation. He's like, set all this down. You don't need this. You don't need any of this. Just put it down and let it become a compost in that soil so that it can like strengthen what the new thing that needs to grow in its place. And then he tells you the most critical piece of all of it, but that the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. If you love each other fervently, if you show charity and compassion, if you speak kindly of all, no matter who deserves it and who doesn't, and you choose to study the word, you find strength in those moments. And that's what Peter's calling us to do. I thought it was kind of fun as I was reading these chapters. Whenever I'd get a little bit of advice from Peter, I would try to think back on the Gospels and Peter's life experiences and associate them. Like, where might he have learned this advice from? And it was kind of fun to me to see how many connecting points there were. So, for example, in the first verse, when he invites you to lay aside all malice and all guile and all hypocrisies and envies, set aside all those evil speakings and pick up something better. So he says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Because that's Peter's whole life with the Savior. Remember, like over those three years, he is constantly having to set down his old habits and his old ways and pick up something higher and holier. You can look at the fish that he set down so that he could follow the Savior. You can even look at moments like, remember that time, I think it's in Capernaum, where a whole bunch of people turn away from the Savior because he's spoken about being the bread of life and they don't get it. And so they're offended by him. And then the Savior comes to Peter and says, like, will you also go away? And he says, to whom will we go? You know, like it's, I don't think Peter understood the bread of life sermon any better than the other people did. I just think he, he knew enough about the Savior's character to know it'll make sense someday. And I'm staying. <laughs> I just think that's what he's inviting us to do. He's like, you're going to be asked to set down some things. You're going to be asked to take these leaps of faith. I need you to go in like a babe and say like, there must be so much more I need to learn. I'm staying. I need the milk of the gospel. That's his promise. And then he encourages you to become something. So if you look further in the verses in like four and five, he encourages you to be a lively stone. I just really like this visual. We're going to talk about it in the object lessons too, but it almost picture, I picture Legos, which is why we go there in the object lessons. But it's this idea of like, you're a stone that's going to do something. You're going to be agile. You're going to be used in different ways and in different combinations, but you're going to be aligned. You know, I think that's what those little dots on the Legos do. They force alignment to some degree, but then let you create all kinds of cool things. And that's what Peter has come to understand. He's like, you need to refine yourself and choose to take the milk of the gospel and strengthen yourself so that you can become a lively stone. You can be a brick that can do incredible things in this great building of God. And he wants that for us. And what you offer in the process is a spiritual sacrifice. That's what it says in five. He also as lively stones are built upon a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. To me, this is the broken heart and the contrite spirit. It's, it's this invitation to offer something greater. And what you receive back is dignity. Remember, we've talked about that over and over again. I just think that's what the priesthood of God offers. It offers men, women, children, anyone who encounters the priesthood, it gives them dignity. And that's what Peter wants for his people. So he encourages them to take part in that great building process of God. And then he reminds them who the corner is. Peter himself, even though he is the president of the church at this time and he holds all the keys, he knows he is not the cornerstone. 
cornerstone is the savior who himself talked about the fact that he would be this corner that people would cast aside. So that's where, you're, where he goes next in seven and eight. He warns that this cornerstone will be a stone of stumbling for some. I think this is powerful given what we see today. There are certain testimonies that will be a stepping stone for some of us. You know, like the Book of Mormon is one of those stepping stone opportunities that allows you to ascend and get closer to Christ as you study it. It also can be a stone of stumbling because if you choose not to believe it, then you have to wrestle with the confusion, right? How could a farm boy who was so young produce such a work? You know, the more I study the Book of Mormon, the more dazzled I am by its historicity and its ability to like align timelines. And I mean, it's an incredible work. In fact, I remember reading once from Elder Holland that he said, if you're going to leave this church, you have to crawl over the stumbling block of the Book of Mormon, which I totally see. Like you can't explain it in any mortal way, how something so divine could come from mortal hands. It just can't be done. You have to crawl over that stumbling block. And that's what Peter's trying to help us see. He's like, you won't understand this without spiritual sight. So humble yourself, dig into that milk of the gospel and let yourself be a part of this work. And you'll start to see what is here. And then in nine, this is when he reminds you who you really are to God. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Oh, There's some beautiful quotes in the notes if you want to go and study more about this idea. But this is his ennobling speech. You know, he's trying to help people see who they really are. The reason God can give us his love so abundantly and so infinitely is because this is who you really are. You were made to be like him. You are created in his image. There is dignity in this work. And Peter sees it and he wants them to catch hold. The same way I feel like President Nelson is inviting the youth today to catch hold of those promises. You are something so much bigger. You are intended to be so much more than this mortal world can give you look wider and further. But it's that idea of being called out of darkness and into his light that I just find motivating. You know, I think those who have heard the gospel so far are then supposed to take it and teach it to others and bring more people to that light. It is a, a work of doing, not just believing. When you go on 10, he adds to it, he says, which in times past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshy lusts which war against the soul. Where they used to be separate and they didn't have lives that crossed each other's paths, now they are one. The, the doctrine of Christ brought their hearts in. And the way they stay on that trajectory is to set down all those fleshy lusts. You know, this is where they have to kind of set down what the world speaks of. Oftentimes I read that verse and I think of it just like, you know, going against the commandments. But I think when you think about Peter's lifetime and the miracles he saw and what he experienced, there's also other ways you can set down fleshy lusts. Like for example, I think about him on the boat right before he steps out onto the water and tries to walk. I think he, in order to actually step onto the water, he had to leave the comfort of that boat. Peter was a fisherman. He's really comfortable in boats. <laughs> he felt very safe in that boat, I imagine. So he had to kind of step away from what was comfortable and safe in order to test his faith and to see a miracle occur. That's what I think Peter's inviting us to do. It's not just avoid all the bad things. It's 
you're going to have to step outside your comfort zone. You're going to have to speak to people you wouldn't normally speak to. You're going to have to study deeper than you ever have before. Like it's step out of the boat and come to Christ wherever he is. Step away from your comfort zone and come closer to him. If you do that, you'll be amplified. That's his promise. So 13, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. This is the same thing King Benjamin taught. You hear it all throughout the Book of Mormon. It's yield to the enticings of the Holy Spirit. Grow in faith. Continue to challenge your faith and push yourself to grow and increase in some way. And 15, for so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Because they can't change their circumstances, they can't change the heart of Nero or of the other Romans that are pushing them down or oppressing them, what they can do is choose how they will react in those moments. And how they react changes hearts. Oftentimes, I think we're praying constantly to change our circumstances. And I feel like what Peter's inviting us to do is change our hearts. How will I help me have the patience and the endurance and the mercy and forgiveness to handle these situations better? And if I do that, if I lean into those promptings, hearts change, or at least they fall silent, is what Peter says. And then in 20, for what glory is it when ye have buffeted your faults, ye shall take it patiently. But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable to God. This is what Peter saw firsthand with the Savior over and over again. Him choosing to handle things patiently. You know, the tax collectors that came rushing to him, the Pharisees that mocked him, the you know, the betrayal that he faced with Judas, Peter saw all that firsthand and he saw how the Savior reacted. And he's inviting us to be as he was and as he is. And then in 21, for even hereunto you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his footsteps. He's Peter's example. He's our example too. The more we study him, the more those patterns will be ingrained in us and we'll know what to do. When you have hard circumstances at work or at church or in your neighborhood, you'll know how the Savior would act because you've studied his character. And so it's easier to know how to react in circumstances. And then he reminds us that those who reviled against him, he didn't revile back at them. He didn't give people what they deserved. He elevated always. He kept his eyes focused on God. And then in 24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye are healed. It almost to me sounds like, you know, the messages you hear on Veterans Day where it's, please don't let the sacrifice go to waste. Remember why they offered it and why it's worth it and how you can honor it. I think it's the same message Peter saying, I knew him. I saw those stripes. Please let them heal you. Let them change you as they've changed me. And then in 25, I just think this is a beautiful capstone to this chapter. For ye were as sheep going astray but are now returned unto the shepherd and the bishop of your souls. This to me is that moment with Peter when after the Savior has, the crucifixion has occurred and they're out fishing again. And then they finally kind of rally back together when they recognize the Savior and they come and he encourages them to feed his sheep. This is Peter saying like, okay, my life is different now. From here on out, here's what I'm doing. This is my focus. And I just think that's his invitation. He's like, you used to be astray. You used to not know. Now you've made covenants come back to this fold and let this bishop of your souls take the lead. The Savior taught us that people will know what disciples, if we are disciples by the way we act towards each other. If we show love one to another, 
people will know that we are his disciples. And I think that applies in families as much as, as, much as it does in any other circumstances. A lot of what you're going to see in three is advice to families or even just husband and wife combinations of how to treat each other and how if they choose to be disciples of Christ and evidence that discipleship, it will heal and help their marriages. It's just written to an audience in Rome, you know, in Paul's day or Peter's day. This is a different time. So when you read things, it comes off a little harsh. The same way we had to kind of break down Paul's writings about marriage. You do the same thing with Peter and you come to an a really lovely place. So for example, in one, it says, likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may be without the word be won by the conversation of their wives. You learn in the JST that this is the conduct of their wives, meaning like you can actually be pivotal in the conversion of your husband if your conduct exemplifies what it's like to be a disciple of Christ. Subjection doesn't necessarily mean to put yourself lower than, it just means to have a relationship that involves sacrifice. I, I just think that's all loving relationships. It means I'm going to put your needs above mine. I'm going to care about your wants and desires. I'm going to take care of you the same way you're going to take care of me. That's why I think as hard as these verses are to read in isolation, when you read the first 10 verses all together, it, it becomes much more clear. Because by 8 and 9 and 10, he's giving advice to the husbands to take care of their wives and to base it on knowledge. I actually really like the advice he gives to wives. You just, I didn't like it at first, but I had to break it down a little bit. And then I came to understand it a little bit better. I just think, so his advice in three, it says, whose adorning, let it not be the outward adorning of plating the hair and wearing of gold or putting on apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart. I think his invitation is one of set all those things down. Remember we talked about this before, I think it was in Hebrews where we were talking about how he's inviting you not to seek attention or power based on how you look or how you sound or trying to sound like men, be dignified and brilliant in your own way. Like embrace your divine feminine characteristics and let those shine out. So that's what he invites us to do. Even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. Remember meek is not lower than meek is I have power and it is in complete control. The savior was meek. He promised the world to the meek. That is not a low status. It is someone who is in control of their emotions and in control of how they react to the world around. That's what he's inviting women to be. And then he says, for after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves being in subjection unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, and long as you do well, are not afraid with any amazement. Now you can read this in a lot of different ways. For me, the reason I think this verse actually lends it dignity to women is because he's saying, no matter what your circumstances are, you can choose to be empowered. I don't think Peter or Paul or anyone in this day could change the societal structure of marriage relationships in Rome, especially. Those were boundaries that they couldn't change all at once. They would take a lot of time to change. What they could do is give women dignity within those boundaries. The same way he tried to give you know, servants who were in households dignity by teaching them who they were and giving them the opportunity to choose to be disciples despite their confinement or asking the Jews to choose to be someone who embraces dignity and in a confined situation with the Romans. It's saying your societal structure may not be able to change in your lifetime. You get to choose how you react to it. That's why I think he's inviting us to step into the daughters of God who have had to deal with subjection in a lot of ways throughout society's history have chosen to be dignified 
because of what they know about themselves and what they know about marriage covenants. Sarah and Abraham knew this about marriage. That's why when you go a little further, you can see it's a reciprocal offering. In seven, likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as a weaker vessel. You can read weaker meaning put down, but I actually think this is an invitation that you are different. He invites them, he invites the husbands to honor their wives according to knowledge, meaning I know who you are and I know how valued you are to God. I think Abraham absolutely knew that about Sarah and he honored her for it. He spoke of her that way. He treasured her. I think you see that throughout all the patriarchs, they honor their wives. And so it's this invitation to to, to be something better. I, the, the weaker vessel, although it bothers a lot of people, I just see it as you're different. It's You're made of different things. You have different traits and different characteristics. And so therefore need caring for. That doesn't bother me. It's the same way this alabaster vase behind me, when we brought it back from Jerusalem, we cared for it much better than every other souvenir I had in my suitcase. We packed it tightly. We took care of it because it's got these luminescent qualities. It's such a delicate stone that it can glow from within when a light's inside it. And because of that, I treated it differently. I just think that's his invitation is to see each other for your strengths and who you are and then come together. So if you look in eight, finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one another, love as brethren, be pitiful and courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrawise blessing, knowing that you're there unto called, that you should inherit a blessing. I just think he wants you wants married couples to be of one mind, sacrifice for each other, take care of each other, see each other's unique characteristics and attributes and amplify them. Come together. That's his invitation. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that speak no guile. I just, to me, this is critical in a marriage, right? That you find ways to speak kindly to each other and about each other, no matter where you are. I think that's what is comforting and solidifying in a marriage is to know that your name is safe and sacred on your spouse's lips, that they will treat it carefully. That's his invitation to us. Live higher and holier. And if you do that, you find happiness in this life. I love that in conference, I can't remember his name. Remember he was talking about how his wife is shorter and so he has to reach for things that are high up in the cupboard and they have this understanding with each other. I just think that's kind of the idea here. He's saying like, care for each other. We gave, the Lord gave you as a pair so that you could help each other and lift each other. Embrace that and move forward in faith. So in 11, he gives you a little more guidance. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him speak, seek peace and ensue it or pursue it eagerly is what the um, footnotes teach us. I just like this because I think this helps every marriage and every family. If you're eagerly pursuing peace, means you're going to let some things go. <laughs> you're going to forgive fast. You're going to ask forgiveness fast. You're going to take care of relationships. When we have peace in that way, then we can go out into the world and do so much more good. We need each other and we need that kind of peace. Um, the reason I think he asks us to do it is not so much to be nice. Remember we talked about this last week. It's not just that you should be nice in your marriage or nice in your families. It's when you choose to set down contention, even when you deserve to embrace it, <laughs> when you choose to set it down, I think you receive the sight of God. That's what he promises in 12. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. The reason he invites us to forgive fast, and to seek forgiveness fast, and to apologize, and to care for each other, is because when we choose to be submissive like that, 
when we choose to swallow our pride and say, it doesn't matter. In fact, it doesn't matter more than you ever. Then we become like the Savior, right? Who did that over and over again in his life. And when we do that, the Spirit can rush in and refine us. We'll have less fighting, less contention, less trouble in our families, in our wards, when we choose to embrace those characteristics. Because the Spirit floods in. And when the Spirit floods in, there can be lasting peace. So I just think that's a beautiful promise. In 14, But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you the reason of the hope that is in you, meekness and fear. This is one of my favorite verses of all this week's study, for sure. But I just, I think this is his invitation. Beam out hope. You have hope in Christ. You know he lives. You know you can live again. You know you can become like him. Beam that hope out. What President Nelson talked, and you can read in the notes this quote, but he basically said, as you just go about your life and you live as a disciple of Christ, people will ask you questions. <laughs> You're going to find this. I find this all the time when I talk about Jason and his cancer journey. Like people will naturally ask me questions, not just about like his situation or what the symptoms were, but things like, how are you still okay? <laughs> I get that question a lot, not just from neighbors or people on Instagram, but even like my kids' friends and things will ask questions that they wouldn't normally ask. I think when we show, choose to show hope, questions come from every direction and we need to be ready with answers. There's this beautiful talk from Sister Eubank about being able to articulate your faith. It's in the notes if you want to go read it, but it's this idea of being able to express why I believe and what I did when I didn't believe or if I ever had doubts and how I got over those and being able to articulate those things beams out hope to others and it draws hearts to Christ. So I just... Love that invitation. He's like, be ready. You don't You don't need to be afraid, but be ready because your lack of fear in moments of trial will catch people's eye and they won't be able to look away. And then 18, for Christ also has suffered for his sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And this is where you get a shift. So in 19, he says, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. This is where you see Peter as distinct and different from all the other writers in the New Testament. He is someone who can teach us doctrine. He can tell us what the Savior did in those moments after he was crucified, after his death, before the resurrection, that time frame, what he was doing there. He, as the president of the church, can declare and help us understand doctrine differently than any other apostle or teacher could. And we learn more about it as you go into the Doctrine and Covenants. So if you go on DNC 138, you can learn all about how Joseph F. Smith was studying this birth. Remember when we studied this in DNC together? And he'd been through so much loss and experienced so much agony from his own family, deaths within his own family, and the greater world around him. There was all kinds of pandemics and troubles in his time. And for him to be pondering this verse and get this crystal clear revelation about what teaching occurred in the spirit world and proxy work. And I mean, it was just this watershed moment. I imagine that's what it was like when people first read Peter's words as well. It just opened up understanding in a whole new way. And then he talks about why it's worth it. So in 21, the figure thereunto, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the, the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To me, this is Peter saying, the proxy work doesn't give you like a fast pass to salvation. <laughs> if, you, if you convert in the next life, you don't get a fast pass. What he's saying is 
it's going to involve both. These ordinances will need to happen, and there will be a repentance process that needs to occur where you, your conscience changes so that you can wax confident in the presence of God, just like we all have to do. So I feel like he's, he's helping us understand the doctrine that you're still going to need both, but that there is this incredible gift of proxy work that can happen. I think the saints in Peter's day knew it. I just think we don't have much writing on it, so you kind of have to focus in on these verses. Chapter four is where Peter starts to sound like your dad. You know, he just sounds like someone who's been through a lot and he's saying, I know what this is like. Let me tell you why it's worth it. You know, for example, in three, he talks about how you had this past life where you did all these other things. Peter had that past life too. I don't even think he had a sin-filled life. I just think he had a life before Christ and everything in his world is marked by that shift. You know, the same way in my brain, there's 2016 and before 2016, when Jason was first diagnosed with cancer, it's like this giant milepost in my life story. And there's the Maria before cancer and there's the Maria after. Both are me and both are good, but it's just like, it's this pivotal moment. For Peter, I think it's the moment he encountered the Savior and then he was never the same again. He's been continually changing since then. And he says to us, as we're reading, basically like, people aren't going to get it. I wonder if this comes from life experience with Peter, where when he set all those fish down and followed the Savior and never went back to those nets, that people were like, you're crazy. You know, when he sold his fishing business and decided to follow the Savior, people must have mocked him and doubted. And But this is his advice. He says, people aren't going to get it. Like in four, wherein they think it's strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot speaking evil of you. Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? He's like, don't worry about that. You know, the same way a dad would tell you, like, don't worry about those people. Their opinions won't matter. High school won't last forever. It, I just think it's this invitation to seek a higher and holier road. So from like seven to 10, he gives you tips on how to do that, how he himself has done it, that he chooses to be watchful unto prayer. He chooses to be gracious and kind, to have fervent charity towards others. Remember, Peter's someone who would understand mocking and scorn and disdain, and he chooses to have fervent charity anyway. He chooses to use hospitality without grudging. I, I really like this tip personally, because I think there's sometimes where I, I want to be Christ-like, so I agree to do things, but then in my mind, I'm resentful. <laughs> you know, when you're like, you've signed up to bring the cupcakes or the whatever, and then the whole time you're making the cupcakes at like two in the morning, you're like, I can't believe she would ask me to do this. Why did she even ask me? <laughs> you, you're resentful at the same time. So I found myself, that's something I'm continually working on. Like I, if I'm going to choose to be Christ-like, it has to be with a pure heart. It has to be, I have to be doing it in his name rather than trying to please someone or impress someone. It has to have a pure motive. And I think that's Peter's invitation as well. And then he invites you to use your gifts to do good. So in 10, as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. To me, this is similar to what we heard from Elder Stevenson in conference, that we've each been given these gifts to be a part of this great building of God. And we need to embrace it. We need to use those gifts and do as much good as we can with them. And if we do, we have strength and help because hard things are coming and you're going to need that strength and help. That's what you see in 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened unto you, but rejoice in as much as you're partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. I had a YSA in my class just a couple of weeks ago who was talking about her awful year and that 
everything went wrong that year. And it wasn't until the end of the year that she started to realize it wasn't just that she had awful luck. It's that God was trying to prune her. I just thought it was such a, a lovely way to articulate it. She was she's like, I, it took some understanding that had happened over the course of time for me to see what he was trying to do with me. And I think that's what he's warning you of here as well. He's saying, don't be surprised that you have fiery trials, even though you're righteous. In fact, expect them and embrace them because it's what will make you who you need to be. You guys remember, there's this quote from Brigham Young where he talks about the temple and he talks about angels that stand as sentinels that you're going to have to pass by those angels. That's kind of what I picture when I read verses like this, because I think there are certain people who are those sentinels. For me, they're happy, joyous sentinels. They're people like Sarah or Esther or Ruth or Eve or, you know, all these other other prophets and all those people that I love and admire from the scriptures, I see them as sentinels. And for me to pass through them or talk to them, I have to experience things that they experienced. My version of trials will not look like Abraham's or Sarah's, but I want to be able to hold my head high and say, I did the best I could with my trials. In fact, I leaned on your testimony to be able to get me through those trials. I think that's what he's trying to help us remember. Like be When you experience trials, rejoice a little bit because you're going to get refined in that process. Elder Maxwell talked about how a refiner's fire isn't just to take, the words are in the notes, but he basically said it's not just to take what what is dirty and awful and make it cleaner. It's also to take something that is already pure and refine it even more. Take something good and make it better. I I think that's what he's inviting us to, is to be continually refined. And then in 14, if you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and God resteth upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. Peter is such a beautiful example of this. His whole life is like this, right? Where he He stretches, he makes some mistakes, he gets refined, he gets corrected. You know, like when he's outside of the Garden of Gethsemane and he cuts off the ear of Malchus, and then he gets corrected, you know, or when he offers to go with the Savior and die in his place or die with him and he gets corrected kind of strongly. Like I think Peter is someone who knows this firsthand. He's like, rejoice in those moments. It means you're being refined. There's this, we've talked about it before, but I love, there was a, um, like a devotional. It was kind of like a a loose conversation that Elder Brednar was having. I watched this video once where he was talking about, if you haven't been corrected by the Spirit lately, you should check the quality of your prayers or something like that. That's been kind of a guidepost for me. Like if I haven't felt a need of correction from the Spirit, then maybe I'm not asking enough questions because that invitation to be corrected is a way for him to refine you even more and you can progress faster. I think that's what Peter wants for us. He's like, progress faster in this relationship. And 16, yet if any man suffer as Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on his behalf. Stand boldly in your testimony, even when it brings the jeers of others. It is something that those whose hearts are ready, when they see you stand with courage and conviction, they will be drawn to Christ. I don't think the vast majority of people respond that way, but those whose hearts are prepared will. And that's why he needs us to stand strong. In 19, wherefore let them suffer according to the will of God, commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. It's that commit word that I loved. It's just this, make a conscious choice to stay the course. No matter what comes your way, embrace the hard times, embrace the fiery trials, trust that he's refining you, embrace the joyous times and those times of respite that he gives you and trust that he is preparing you for greater leaps in the future. I think when you have the stance of commitment, he can 
advance you. The same way when Peter stepped out of that boat or stepped away from those fish or, you know, stepped into Jairus's house, when he made those commitments to stay with the Savior, the Savior could amplify his progress. You see it over and over again in Peter's life, and I think he wants to see that in ours too. When the Savior was about to ascend to the Father, one of the last encounters Peter had with him, he invited him to feed his sheep. Because I think the Savior knew he couldn't be among them the way he had in the past. And his primary concern was for his flock. And he wanted the apostles to care for the flock until he could return. I just think it's really interesting that that's Peter's stance in chapter 5 too. He knows he's at the end of his ministry and his time as an apostle. And his big concern is for the flock. This flock that he had stewardship over for his lifetime now is going to be passed to others. And he is concerned. And so he tells the under shepherds, you know, the elders of the church, feed the flock. I just really love this idea. Let me tell you why. This is one of those weird revelatory moments that happened in odd circumstances. So I was subbing in a, I think it was a sunbeam class, maybe CTR6. And we were, I was trying to corral these cute little kids, which is sort of impossible at that age. But you know, you come up with songs or games or things they can do to try and keep them engaged and keep them sitting still. About halfway through the lesson, you guys, I brought out the treats that I had brought. And I said, okay, we're going to have these at the end of class, but you know, you have to play my game first before we can have the treats. And the change in their behavior was remarkable. I know everybody knows this, but something about this moment for me, the visual that came into my mind was feed my sheep. When I chose to offer food to the zombies and put it somewhere central that they could all see, they voluntarily obeyed. <laughs> they voluntarily listened better. I just think this is what I think this is what the Savior understood and Peter understood about the power of the word. When you choose to feed the sheep, meaning give them truth, undiluted and unvarnished, give them truth to feed on, they will come on their own accord. They will choose to come close. They will want and crave what you're offering and it will change them. I think it's interesting that he doesn't give the direction to like defend the flocks or protect the flocks. Instead, it is feed the flocks of God. Because when you choose to feed them, you strengthen them from within. You know, the, the gospel message, that good word of the gospel that they can feast on strengthens them from within so that they can spot counterfeits. They can spot wolves among the flock themselves. You're supposed to feed them from within. And I learned that with the sunbeams, you know, when they, when I chose to offer them food, they disciplined themselves. <laughs> and I just think there's power in that message. We're going to talk about it in the object lessons too, but I love his invitation is in three, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. These elders or parents or teachers or anyone who is in a position to teach others in the flock, he invites you not to lord over them, but to be an example to them. As you choose to feast on the words of Christ, others will too. They'll see the joy in your face. They'll see the ease that happens in your life when you have that confidence in Christ and they'll, they'll come closer. And then he invites you to be to take care of your stewardship until the chief shepherd comes back. So in four, and when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. We are temporarily in charge of our stewardships, right? We have this little family or your calling or your ministering assignments. You have this little stewardship, this little part of the flock to take care of. And at some point he will return and he'll want to know how things went. And we want to be able to hold our heads high and say, I did the best I could, or here's where I struggled, but this is how you helped me. And I think he's inviting you to have that stance. 
And then he encourages you to be clothed in humility and cast your cares upon him. So if you look in seven, casting all your care upon him for he careth for you. I just love this coming from Peter, right? He knows the savior. He knows how much the savior loves and cares for his flock. Peter knows that firsthand because the savior loved and cared for him. So he's inviting you not to sweep things under the rug, but to take your cares to God. I think this is one of the ways we can avoid speaking evil against other people or being overly frustrated or resentful. When we form a relationship with God, we can take our frustrations to him. We can cast those things onto him and get guidance and the spirit to help us navigate our worlds a little bit better. And then he speaks about the adversary and his reality. I think you can't be a man like Peter and not know firsthand the power of the adversary. And so he talks about what he is and his intentions. Be sober and be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Where the Savior hoped to lift and enlighten, the adversary hopes to drag you down to hell. Like there is no soft way to put that. That's his intent to make you miserable as he is. And remember what we studied about that word miserable? It's a separation from God. It's not just sadness or unhappiness. It's it's a gulf between you and the goodness of God that cannot be crossed over. That's what Satan hopes for you. And so Peter wants us to be clear on that. And then I love that he comes out of that deep, dark part and ends on a point of light. So in 10, but the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, maketh you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. That's peace, right? This idea of when you endure the trials that come from the outside world, the trials that come from the adversary, anything that comes your way, when you endure it well, you come out established, strengthened, and settled. I had this interesting conversation with uh, someone who was teaching Relief Society lesson in my ward, and she asked me like how I teach, how I teach and exemplify the gospel to my kids, or something kind of like that. And the understanding that came to me as I was typing out my response in a text message was, "It's not happiness that draws my kids in." It's not that I project that life is happier in the gospel, although it is. And I try to show that as much as I can. I really think what pulls my kids to the gospel is confidence. This idea of no matter what happens, I am settled. I am assured. I am at peace. Because I can't always project happy. You know, sometimes my calling is hard. Sometimes our circumstances are really hard. Sometimes things are just dark. But I can project a stance of confidence. And I think confidence in Christ actually has much more magnetic pull than just happiness does. I think when you see confidence in others, you're immediately drawn in because it it feels like it can last. And that is something I think we all hope for. I think that's Peter's message too. The second epistle of Peter is just as good, if not better. This is probably right before his death, it is the meaty, weighty doctrine where he's trying to help us understand why it's all worth it. This idea of the exceeding great and precious promises. His audience is a little bit different in the second epistle. It's more targeted and focused on those who have made covenants and who are who are of a certain degree of faith. He says faith like us. I assume that means like like the apostles themselves, like those who knew and walked with the Savior, that there are those who they've taught who now have that same level of faith, which is just staggering to me. But I think it's exactly what the apostles today teach, that 
you don't need a physical experience with the Savior in order to obtain that kind of faith. It comes from the Spirit. So that's what he says in verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us, through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of our God and our and of Jesus our Lord. The way you obtain that kind of faith is through building knowledge of God. I think the only way you can come to know God is to know his Savior, right? That's what the Savior himself taught us. And I think the way you come to know the Savior is to keep his commandments, to grow in faith and experiment on the word and all those things that, you know, build you up over the course of time. That's how you achieve the level of faith that Peter is speaking of. And he talks about what's waiting for those who have achieved this level of faith. This is in four. Whereby are given unto us exceedingly great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in this world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and temperance patience, patience, and patience godliness, and godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. These are all these beautiful attributes of the Savior. And I feel like what he's trying to teach me is how to become like him. He's saying the big gift, the big, great, and precious promise is that you can obtain divine nature. You have all the components to be that kind of person. The same way an acorn has all the potential it needs in order to become an oak tree. It just has to go through this process and it needs some outside influence to actually reach its potential. The same thing happens with us. I feel like we are born with everything we need to become like him. We just need time and we need that process and we need those outside influences of grace to help us along the way. But that those are the steps he gives you. I actually see those virtues that are listed there almost the same way I see a water filter. Do you guys remember, in the, I think it was in the Doctrine Covenants, when we made that filter that went into a water bottle, and we put different layers of, you know, dirt and rocks and things, and you'd filter the water through it, and in each layer, it would get refined more and more. And then the water that would come out the bottom wasn't perfectly clear yet, so you'd run it through the filter again, and over the course of time, it became clear. That's kind of how I read these virtues, because I think they're interwoven. In fact, there's a great talk from Elder Hales where he breaks down each of these virtues and talks about how they flow into each other beautifully. But I think that's the idea here. He's saying, as you go through this process of building up your faith and your virtue and your knowledge and your patience, it's like this filter that you're continually putting yourself through. And over the course of time, all those impurities leave you and you become as he is. I think that takes a really long time <laughs> beyond this life for sure. But I think his promise is that it's possible to you if you do these things. That's why I love how it's phrased in eight. For if these things be in you, meaning those characteristics of Christ, and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. This is why it's worth it to continually refine and cycle ourselves through these characteristics of Christ. Because then we become pure as he is pure. We are able to set down all those impurities that come from this mortal fallen world and we take on those attributes. And then you have that promise. I mean, calling an election made sure is meaning you, it almost like brings the day of judgment closer. There's some quotes in the notes you can learn about this, but in this mortal life, you can know what will happen next. You can have confidence that you will be exalted, that you will have the promise. That's a huge understanding to have in this life. And he's saying it's possible. 
to me, this is why it's so powerful that Peter speaks of the living Christ, because he's saying he still has a relationship with the Savior. Part of this promise is that you'll come to know the Savior in a very intimate way, that you'll you'll feel him, you'll experience him from time to time. That's that's this promise. It's it's a surety that comes, and Peter wants that for these people. And so he tells you how. In 13, he says why he's putting all this effort in. Yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this ta- my tabernacle, even as the Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Remember before the Savior left, he told Peter that he would die as the Savior did, that they would do to him what they did to the Savior in a manner of speaking. And so Peter's known this all along, but he is choosing to take these last moments to stir us up to remembrance so that we can remember that his promise, the hope that is in us is this ability to obtain the divine nature, not a mansion, not a crown, but a promise of being as he is and having that kind of character. I imagine Peter's whole lifetime was spent trying to obtain the character of Christ. Now you see it really quickly in Peter's ministry after the savior ascends, you see him You know that situation where they're asked to heal the man on the steps of the temple and he says, silver and gold, have I none? Like That sounds like the Savior. He interacts with people the the same way the Savior would have. And you can see him taking on those characteristics of Christ early in his ministry. So now that we're like 30 years in the future, I can only imagine what Peter has done and the miracles he's seen. And he hopes to stir up our hearts to realize that that can happen for all of us. We can all come close to God in this life as he has been able to do. It's just empowering. When you flip the page, you can see more invitations and more testimony. So 16, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Don't you just love that word choice? His majesty. He doesn't say we were eyewitnesses of his miracles or of certain specific things that happened during his ministry. It's his majesty, his who he is and the the power and the magnitude and radiance of Christ. In fact, he's going to next refer to the Mount of Transfiguration and hearing God the Father testify of Jesus Christ. I think that's the pinnacle moment for Peter where he comes to a certain knowledge. I think there are some prophets who speak about the endowment happening upon top of that mountain. This is a moment that is pivotal for Peter and changes how he how he sees the Savior and how much clarity he has about the Savior's mission. And then he invites us to grab hold. So if you look in 18 and 19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn, the day star arise in your hearts. To me, this is Peter saying, hold tight to the words I'm teaching you. I am an eyewitness of the Savior. I knew him. I still know him. I am this light in a dark place. Hold on to my testimony for now, but realize this is a small light compared to the sun that will rise. You know, almost like if you have a headlight or a flashlight when you're out camping and it's it holds you through the night and eventually the sun starts to rise and you have full brightness. That's what Peter's trying to say. The word I can offer you and the testimony I can give you is not a fable. It is not a fairy tale. It is true. And it is a small light compared to what is coming. Watch for that sunrise. Lean on my testimony until you can see that day star arise. I love that verse. If the night seems long and it seems like the sunrise is slow to come, it can get tempting to rely on other lights to guide you. 
And I think that's what Peter's trying to warn us about in two. He's basically saying there are going to be false teachers and false prophets and damnable heresies, things that are someone who has wrested the scriptures or twisted things to their own convenience and their own profit. That's what he warns us about. And don't fall into their traps. I actually think the way he phrases it is really interesting. It's in three. He says, and through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. Isn't that an interesting turn of phrase? Uh, You become a commodity, a, a thing to be wielded and manipulated. That is not the way the Savior does things. And he warns that those who are trying to shine other lights to tempt you away from the sunrise that is coming. They're trying to make a merchandise of you and don't fall prey to their words. He talks about others in the history of scripture who've been in similar circumstances to us. Sometimes our world feels dark. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of distortion of doctrines and you know, truth mingled with scripture. I feel like you get all of that in our world. And then he gives you these, this list of people who also lived in dark worlds and the promise that you will be delivered. Now he uses people like Noah and Lot to show that when there are righteous among in a dark world, they will be delivered. God has always find, found ways to protect his saints in one way or another. So he uses those as a framework to say, you don't need to be afraid of the dark circumstances of your world. God will find a way to deliver you. Stay strong, no matter what your circumstances are. And then that's what he says in nine, the Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. He's basically saying, I think God takes care of both. He finds a way to take care of those who are the oppressors, those who are pushing down. He will find a way to deal with them on the day of judgment. And he'll also find a way to help you in the process. So endure it well. And then 14, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls and heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children. It's kind of a weird phrase, except for I really love the beguiling of unstable souls. To me, this is why we need to be deeply rooted, why we have to dig deep. I think we heard that in conference too, this idea of like digging into the foundation and grabbing hold of that rebar with our covenants. It's this invitation to be solidly planted. Because if you're not, then it's a lot easier to beguile you. If you're an unstable soul to start with, then all those false lights that are going to be brought in those darker hours will be appealing. So kind of that same way last week we talked about the ladders and being shaky as you stand between the world and God's plan. I think his invitation is commit, pick pick God's side and find the stability that comes there. He gives you a couple more examples, but I really like his powerful visual that he gives in 17 about those who teach anything contrary to God. He calls them, these are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. Oh, you guys, wells without water. I just thought it was such a perfect visual because it's like, I don't know, I do a lot of hiking and when I'm on the trails, especially lately, oftentimes I will see a water fountain like at a trailhead or something and think that I can go get some water from that only to find out that the water's been shut off for the winter. And it's almost... So it's so demoralizing, right? Because you've taken your energy to get all the way over to where that trailhead is to get to the water, and then you go to turn it on and there's nothing. That's what I feel like learning from any other light is. You know, anyone who pretends to be a light without authority, without priesthood, without truth, they are a well without water. They waste your energy. They distract your mind away from the progress you could have been making. They are someone who promises refreshment but can't deliver. That's that's apostasy to me. It's this, it's um, a drifting towards something that cannot nourish you. 
So he invites you to come close. I think you see that in 19. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are servants of corruption, for of whom man is overcome, and of the same is he brought in bondage. I was teaching my way essays about the same concept, and one of my one of the guys in my class said, it's so interesting that the Savior's plan, or God's plan, seems confining at first. There are commandments that you, you know, you're submitting your will to God. It seems confining, but it actually gives liberty. Whereas the adversary's plan seems liberating. It says, set all those confinements down. You don't need commandments. You don't need restrictions. But what it does is it sends you to confinement. He's like, they're polar opposites of each other. And I thought it was such a powerful visual to see, yeah, that's the adversary's strategy. He will make things look freeing and liberating while he entangles you or wraps that flaxen cord around your neck where as the Lord's strategy is come to me offer your whole souls unto me and I will give you all that the father hath I mean they they just couldn't be more polar opposite and you see that in 19 as well and then he warns about being entangled in it and then 21 for it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them this is uh, talking about apostasy and saying that those who knew the truth and turned away from it are in a worse place than they were than those who've just never heard the truth. Kind of talking about accountability for our spiritual understanding. But I actually really liked when you add into this what you read in Alma 24, because he talks about the result of this kind of apostasy where you've had light and you turn away from it is a hardening of the heart. It's almost like if the prodigal son who returned to his father and was embraced decided to go back to that idolatrous way of life, you know, or if Corianton went back to Isabel, like it's once you have an understanding and a light and you retreat back to an old self, you harden because you lose connection with the spirit and you harden harder and it takes more, you know, it'll take more than a pig's tie to get you to soften and change. I think that's the warning. In a few places in the Book of Mormon, prophets almost change their tone to sound like they're speaking to our day. You know, like the end of Nephi's life and Mormon and Moroni, they start to speak to us. That's what happens in this last chapter of the epistle of Peter. He speaks to us. So it says, in the latter days, there will, people who, there will be people who scoff and scorn and doubt that the second coming will occur. And he gives us this big golden piece of advice in verse eight. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. I just think this is a powerful witness. It's echoed in the Book of Mormon as well. I think it's Alma that teaches it, but it's this idea of, it's not a literal, you know, do the math and you can figure out how many days it is. It's he's saying, God is in an eternal now. I think that's Elder Maxwell. There's a quote in the notes that's all about this, but his timing is different than ours. So we don't need to worry. We don't need to stress over when that day will come. We have to trust that just like that parable of the 10 virgins, a call will go out and those who are prepared We'll be ready to meet the bridegroom. And those who aren't, we'll be scrambling. And Peter doesn't want us to scramble. So he basically says, whether your time is up because the Savior comes or your time is up simply because you depart this life, the time is now. Act now. I love his um, example that he gives in nine. I think it tells you something about the Savior's heart. It says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I don't think he has any desire to destroy the children of God. I don't think he is eager to see that destruction phase occur. I think he's going to try and give as much time as possible to 
allow men to learn and to change and to become. I think he is long-suffering to usward. I don't think that means we can delay his coming by our choices. I think that's, that date is set in stone, as prophets have told us. Nobody knows it, but I think it's been determined from the very beginning. But we can change how we feel. The same way the virgins who went and got oil beforehand changed, it changed how they felt in that preparation phase. When the call rang out, they were ready and they were able to attend. That's his invitation. Because in 10, he says, even though today is not the day, that day will come. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also and the works therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? The Savior said something similar when he comes to the Nephites, and he says, what manner of men ought ye to be, even as I am? You know, while we still have time, in this earth life, we should seek to become like him. We should seek to acquire those divine attributes that Peter taught us about. Go through that process of filtering ourselves over and over again as we await with joy. In fact, that's what I love about his stance. If you go on 13 and 14, he's saying, look for new heavens and a new earth. There is this inherent optimism in Peter. Despite the fact that his life has been so hard and riddled with pain and loss and struggle, I imagine it's also been full of joy and light and miracle moments, not just when the Savior walked near him, but also beyond, right? As he used his priesthood to do good in the world and to stand where the Savior would and act as he did. I just think Peter's had a remarkable life of light and loss, and he comes together and says, it's worth it. Hold fast. Be diligent is what he offers in 14. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. blameless. That's the settled confidence that I think Peter has in this moment. It's what he hopes for us as well, that all of the trials we experience, all of the peace we've found, all the light that is here, we can take part of and let it settle our souls so that we can look forward to his coming. All right, you guys, time for the creative side of week 47. So part of what I do here is I'm trying to find fun, creative ways to teach all different age groups some of the things that Peter taught us. I think it's one thing for you to love the gospel. It's another thing to help your kids love it. And I think one of the things that's challenging about home-centered learning is you often are teaching a mixed age range. And today I'm hoping to help you cover all the bases because we got something for everybody this week. So for those of you who aren't familiar, I'm going to walk you through a preview of each of the object lessons, give you an idea of the supplies you might need. And then if you're in the paid course, you just want to keep watching and I'll walk you through each one individually and help you, you know, give you access to the notes and the printables so that you can pull them off. This is a really good week. Okay, first and foremost, we're going to talk about what it means to be a lively stone. This is one of those phrases that Peter uses to help us appreciate that we were put here for a purpose. We're supposed to be part of something bigger and we were created unique. But we also have some really similar characteristics. And what came to mind as I was studying that idea of a lively stone was Legos. I feel like these are just a really simple way to teach this principle to your kids. So to teach this, you really don't need anything other than like a random stash of Legos. You don't want the ones that go specifically to create a certain kit. It's ideal if these are the ones like that you get out of your junk drawer or the toy bin, you know, the ones you find at the bottom, because you're going to show how you can create things from them. 
And since it's Tech Week, I'm going to introduce you to a cool app that helps you do just that. Take the random garbagey Legos that you don't know what to do with and create cool things from them. So stick with me. I promise your kids are going to love that one. Second one, for this one, the only supplies you need are the printable. I'm actually trying to create a way for you to have a conversation with your teenagers about sharing the hope that is in them. Remember how Peter invites us to always have an answer ready because people are going to want to know why we feel hope in hard times. And if we have answers ready, we can draw hearts to Christ. So I actually think these opportunities are much more frequent than we give them credit for. Even in your teenager's life, I think they are so much more common. You just have to be watching for those moments. So the it's not really a game. The activity that you're going to go through involves this printable where I've created what I'm calling direct messages. I've kind of formatted it to look like a phone and a direct message that a friend might send them. And then you're going to practice responses. And we'll walk through all of this. But the idea being that the more I practice watching for these opportunities to share hope and practice the words I might say in those settings, the more comfortable I'll feel and the more opportunities the spirit can give me to do just that. So for this one, you just need some cardstock. If you want your kids to participate in this in another way, you'll also want some pens on hand, but you don't really need anything fancy for this one. Okay, third one and the most adorable of all three, you're going to talk about feeding his sheep. So just like I told you in the insights, subbing in that class of sunbeams helped me understand the value of feeding sheep rather than protecting or defending sheep. So we're going to walk through that process with our own hard to wrangle sheep. So for this one, supplies wise, you just need white balloons. If you want to make flappy ears, which of course you do because they're adorable. You also want to add some black cardstock to the sides. This is not a printable. This is just like slapping it on with tape kind of cardstock. Um, and then you want to create a place in the area that you're teaching for the sheep to be wrangled towards. Basically, you're going to show the difference between herding sheep and feeding sheep, and you're going to help your kids see that process. So maybe painter's tape that you could put on the floor or just make a structure out of folding chairs or your couches to, to give your kids a place to herd towards. The last big thing you'll need for this one is some kind of edible prize. What your kids won't realize until the end of this object lesson is that they are actually demonstrating the scripture themselves. They just won't see that until the end. So in order for that to work, you need some kind of prize. Make some Rice Krispies, buy some cupcakes, do something that will entice your kids to want to herd the sheep and they'll learn something powerful in the process. They'll learn the value of feeding sheep as they act out this object lesson. I promise they're going to love it. So for that one, white balloons, some kind of treat to hold them over and painter's tape to mark out your like flock area and you'll be good to go. All right, you guys, that's it for week 47. Okay, I hope you love this week of study. This is some of the most beautiful writing from the Savior's chief apostle. It is rich and full, and you really can't give it too much time. So do what you can, and I promise you'll love it. If you need extra help with the verses or with the object lessons, as always, you can come find me on Instagram. So Monday morning at 10 Mountain Time, I will pop on for about an hour and chat through some of the insights I couldn't quite fit into this week's videos or podcast, and then also open myself up to questions you have about the object lessons. So if there's things that don't make sense to you, or you just have a question on how you can do something better, come find me on the live. If you can't catch it live, feel free to watch it in my feed for about a week, or you could message me on YouTube or on the discussion boards within the course, and I'll answer your questions as they come rolling at me. But I think this will be a pretty self-explanatory week. There's, there's so much goodness in the verses and the object lessons are easy. So hopefully you just enjoy it and then come on back next week for even more. All right, you guys, enjoy this week and I'll see you on Monday.